you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. All right, well, welcome, everybody. Uh, We are jumping in as we continue our series, Summer on the Mount, uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount in about eight weeks, and every week I study this, and every week I come, and every week I start, and I show up by saying, we will need to do a more in-depth study through the Sermon on the Mount, because there is so much rich power and beauty in the words of Jesus, and we are going to do in this series kind of a 30,000-foot view in which we're going to talk about different areas, but some sermons are going to be on a few verses. Coming up in a few weeks, we have one that's on like three verses. Others are going to be on more than that, and so we have a lot to navigate this morning, uh, but really excited for what God has for us. Now, as we've been talking about this, we've been looking at how last or two weeks ago, we read the entire Sermon on the Mount with the mindset of saying, let's look at the whole context of what Jesus is saying. Rather than having the time where we, oh, I really like this part of the Sermon on the Mount, and I really like that, but I don't really know about what this, and I don't like that. Let's look at the whole context of what Jesus' sermon is really about, and acknowledging the fact that reading the whole sermon was about less than 12 minutes, which the day that I do a sermon less than 12 minutes, that's going to be amazing, but we're just not there yet. So it's this acknowledgement that Jesus had so much power and so much beautiful um, insights, wisdom, challenges. It's not easy, right? This isn't a, a comfortable sermon, but it is a powerful one. And last week we talked about how the values of the kingdom are completely upside down to the value of the world as we looked at the idea of the Beatitudes and what it meant to be the ones who are blessed and how our world uh, honors and values things the exact opposite. Now, what we're going to talk about today is this idea of the heart of the matter. And we're going to take um, a passage through uh, Matthew 5, 21 through 48. So this is, again, one of those that has more verses than maybe normal. Um, so go ahead and turn there if you have uh, your Bible app with you. If you have a Bible that you brought, awesome. If you don't have either of those, we have Bibles that are available in the seat racks in front of you. We are not going to have each verse on the screen. So I do encourage you to actually pull up the scripture, whether through an app or the Bible, as we unpack it in a couple of moments. Now, the heart of the matter, there are... Um, Uh, different TV shows and and movies and things like that that um, I'll watch sometimes. And it's maybe you've seen this too, where there's times when it's just if the whole set of drama that happens between whatever characters, whatever's going on, is all just because people won't just, like, communicate to one another. And it's like if everyone were just to talk and to be able to, to communicate what's going on, there wouldn't be drama. There wouldn't be TV shows that have all these different seasons because it'd be like, hey, we have drama and conflict because that's normal in life to have people to have conflict. Let's talk through it. Let's speak truth and love. Let's find ways to be peacemakers, not just peacekeepers. And then we just say, okay, we're, we'll move forward from here. And this idea, and I think the reason why this resonates with me so much is that uh, my parents got separated when I was 10 years old. And uh, they told me a few weeks later that they were going to go ahead and get divorced. And it, was, it, it took a while for that actually to get finalized. But it wasn't until I was an adult when I remember hearing the conversation and, and my mom sharing, for example, the idea that part of the reason why, that well, the main reason why the marriage didn't work was because she, they weren't able to communicate well together. 
And so I just think about all the dynamics of divorce. I think about what that was like for me. And, and for me, my parents were very amicable and still are very amicable when it comes to divorce. So the best um, possible idea of divorce is kind of how it was. And since where Monday, Wednesday, Friday nights, I would spend with my dad when I was growing up. And then Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, I would spend with my mom. They, they got along well. They still get along well. But even with that said, the idea of recognizing that, wait, it was, it was a lack of communication. It's, it's, it's not these other areas of drama that create division within people. It's, it's the heart of the matter of not being able to communicate. That was the heart of the matter for their divorce. They didn't know how to communicate or, or one side wasn't willing to communicate as much as the other. And so what happens? When one side isn't willing to communicate, we build up walls. When we build up walls, trenches start to develop and chasms. And when chasms develop, then the separation of the relationship takes place. And for you, maybe that isn't your story, but you can think about the difficulties in your life and think what, was, what lies at the heart of the matter of my difficulties. Maybe it's something where you're like, I want to get healthy. I want to be able to feel like, I, like I'm healthy, but not sleeping super well. You're, you're eating poorly. And maybe the heart of the matter there is needing to develop discipline. Maybe it's you, see, you look around and you see relationships and friendships that have, have burnt bridges, and maybe the heart of the matter is that you're so focused on being right that you're not always loving. Maybe you look at your kids and you see them growing up and you think, why aren't they following the Lord the, the way that we want them to or we prayed for them to? And maybe the heart of the matter is looking in the mirror, and all of us have to do this, right? But looking in the mirror and say, how well are we living out what we are saying and teaching? Are we, are we saying one thing with our lips and going out and doing something different with how we live? I mean, these are just a few examples, but it shows us that in order to get the fruit that we want, the, the good things that we want, we often have to go down to the root, to the heart of the matter, and find out what is it that God might be wanting to do in us and through us. And what is it that he might need to uproot in the soil of your heart and mine? in order to experience the life that he has for us. And not the life like the world says we talked about, blessed are the comfortable, blessed are those, but the life that is truly life. The life that is overflowing, the life that comes from Jesus who says, I came to give you life and life abundant. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but sometimes in order to experience that life, that hope, that purpose that each of us are designed for, we need to get past the outside, get past the surface, and we need to get down to the heart of the matter. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether they're live in person, live online, watching or listening later. Lord, I thank you that each person who hears my voice is someone that you love deeply. You created them, you shaped them, you molded them. You know the hairs on their heads, the cries of their hearts, and the days of their lives. Jesus, each person that is here is someone that you lived a perfect life and you died a horrible death and you extend the offer of eternal life to each one. And Holy Spirit, each person who hears my voice is someone you want to draw one step closer to the Father or in the verbiage of what we're talking about today, one step deeper to the heart of the matter of our lives, both externally and internally following you. Lord, I pray that as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
As I mentioned, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. And 21 through 40 will be the main chunk of scripture. But Matthew 5, 17 through 20 is, is this hinge point coming from last week, looking at the Beatitudes, and then looking at the idea that you are salt of the earth, light of the world. People would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, is verse 16. And then verse 17 comes in. And it shows us Jesus' words, the idea of the fulfillment of the law. The fulfillment of the law from the Old Testament and how it was designed, what it was meant to communicate, and how they, and how if we're not careful, how we can often substitute the fulfillment for uh, just, just a little portion of it. How we take a surface when it's meant to get down to the heart of the matter. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. This will be on the screen, the next few verses. It says this, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And we're gonna start here for a moment because Jesus is about to say some things over verses 21 through 48 that are going to sound very contradictory to what the people in the ancient Near East at that time would have been used to hearing. Some of them are things that he's going to say that, oh yeah, no, we understand that, and then he takes it deeper. And so what he's saying at the very beginning is, I'm not here to abolish what God's word says. We remember Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. I mean, Jesus was there from the very beginning. Jesus in the beginning was the word And the word was God, and the word was with God. And then the word became flesh and started to unpack what the word truly meant. And so he says, I'm not here to abolish it. I'm not here to get rid of what the Old Testament had said. But I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to show you the fullest meaning, the fulfillment of the law. Because it says here, not not the smallest letter or not the least stroke of a pen. The idea of... um, not even like the little, so the smallest letter would be an iota in Greek, and it's just a little letter I, and it's the smallest one. So it's not even the smallest letter would be removed. And then there's this idea of not even the least stroke of a pen. Now you're thinking, how can that actually be what it said? They didn't have pens back then. This wasn't the same thing. This idea is that it's the smallest little mark. So it could be, you, you hear maybe every jot or every tittle. This idea of every little mark would not be erased. And this goes back to the idea in the Old Testament in ancient Hebrew, there are words like sin, or letters, excuse me, like sin and shin, that the only way you could determine, it's the exact same shape, the only way you could determine which letter it is, is that there's a dot on top of either the left side, my, my right, I guess my left, your right, or the other. One is sin and one is shin. And so it's saying, listen, I'm not here to abolish law. In fact, every written part of the law is something that I'm here to fulfill. And we see that Jesus is not, he's fulfilling the law in regards to him living a perfect life. That all the different ways in which we are pointing to what sin looks like, Jesus was sinless. Now he was tempted, right? We see that he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4. So being being tempted isn't a sin, but how he responds and how we respond in the midst of that can cause us to either fall into temptation or to be able to remove ourselves from it. And he's saying that, the law, he fulfilled all the moral obligations of the law to be a perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So by the law, he comes to fulfill it by living perfectly. But then by the prophets, he fulfills it because 
all the prophets, all the messianic prophecies that point to who Jesus is or who the Messiah would be, Jesus fulfills them. So that every small letter and every stroke of the pen that's written about him in the Old Testament would be fulfilled. He's not here to erase that which established him coming. He's here to show the fulfillment of the law and what his coming truly means. So we continue on. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, in other words, Jesus did not conceive of his life and ministry in terms of opposition to the Old Testament. He's not saying, you used to believe all these wrong things, now I'm telling you the right thing, and that's all wrong. But in terms of bringing to fruition that toward which it points. It's like the seeds have been planted in the law, in the Old Testament, in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And Jesus says when those seeds of what the law is meant to be and how it's meant to be lived out, when the prophecies are pointing to the Messiah, I am the fruition of that. So we need to go, if you want to experience the fruit, we have to evaluate the root. Thus, the law and the prophets, far from being abolished, find their valid continuity in terms of their outworking in Jesus James Montgomery Boyce continues, and he says it this way. This means that the scripture finds its fullest meaning in him, in Jesus. It is by him, for him, and about him. It is an enigma unless the one who reads it sees the Lord Jesus Christ through its core. So maybe for some of you, you're still on your journey of faith, and maybe you would say, I don't, I don't have a faith. If that's you, we are so honored and grateful that you are here with us today, and we recognize that that could have been intimidating, but we want to honor the fact that you are here, whether it's live in person or whether you're joining us online. But if that's you, you might be reading some of these words and think, this doesn't make sense to me. And it's only going to make sense when we see it through the reality of who Jesus is, and we see it through the prism of how he lived and who he is. So there's this visual that I, I was thinking about and wanted to show with you of a prism right here. So let's imagine this for a second, okay? Let's imagine that this light is, um, well, what a, the way a prism works is that a light is shining through, and then through the prism, it refracts light. So this light, while it's white light, when you refract it, is actually seven different, six, seven different shades of color, and when all the light is together, it's white, but when it's refracted, it's split up and the various um, color spectrums are able to be seen more clearly. Now, imagine this old, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament scripture is like this light that was pointing to Jesus. It's the light that was laid down through the law that shows us the need for a savior and through the prophets that points us to what the savior, this Messiah would look like. And so it's saying all of this is pointing to Jesus. He's fulfilling it. He's making it real for them. And let's envision for this moment, for the sake of our conversation, that this prism is Jesus, the person of Jesus, the fact that he's fully God, fully man, and it's only through him that we are able to see the full spectrum of what it means to follow Jesus. It's not just about rigid, don't do this, do that. It's about saying, what is it like to be someone like Christ, and to be someone that runs from temptation. It's pointing us that without Jesus as the center of our worldview, without him as the one through which we see everything else, the scriptures, and we might think, oh, that's a good piece of advice, you know, um, turn the other cheek, that sounds really good. And so someone from, who doesn't know Jesus might be like, oh, that's a good idea, until someone actually slaps us on the cheek. And then we think, well, I need to stand up for my rights. I need to fight back. But in view of the prism of who Jesus is, we recognize that he was beaten and stricken. He did not say a word. That in silence, he was led to the slaughter like a lamb. 
So it's pointing to this idea that what was originally points to Jesus is so much richer and more beautiful and, dare I say, much more difficult to live out. Because we're going to see that the examples that they give are not ones that are easy for us. The examples Jesus shares are ones that cause us to feel uncomfortable and to squirm a little bit. But that's because he's showing us the fullness of what it means to follow him. He doesn't just want our external good checklists that we did a good job this week. He wants yours and mine and our hearts. That the heart of the matter is not look good on the outside for a Sunday morning service. It's let God work from the inside out each and every day. It's not about one hour out of the 168 in a week. It's living for him each and every day and allowing to, us to see our neediness for him through the law and our desire to have a relationship with him as prophesied through the prophets. We continue on. Montgomery Boyce says this, We must remember that Jesus Christ was the author of Scripture during the Old Testament period, that subsequent to that, he was the one who came and lived on earth to fulfill it, and then that he inspired the New Testament writers to interpret correctly the things he had already done. He is the prism through which we see the Old Testament. We often see the Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed, and the New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed. He is the linchpin. He is the focal point. He is the prism through which all of this makes sense. He is the center of the worldview, and as 1 Corinthians 3 said, he is the only foundation upon which we can build our lives. So anyone who hears his words and puts them into practice, which we'll look at at the end of the Sermon on the Mount on the last week, is like... A wise person who builds their house on the rock. Yet those who hear the words and do not put them into practice are like foolish builders who build their lives and their house on sand. He's saying that when we look at the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the law shows us that Jesus is the one who fulfilled all the moral obligations as well as the messianic prophecies. And therefore, he alone ought to be the center focus of our lives when we look at his word and how we live. So we've looked at the fulfillment of the law, but this is the, this is the harder part, I think, of the sermon. This is the part where we look at the fullness of our sin. Acknowledging that when we think, oh, I didn't really sin today. I, I did all right. We often think of big things like, well, I, you know, I didn't murder someone, and I, you know, I didn't like, you know, steal or, or cheat or whatever. We think of the big things, and we say, well, I'm, I think I'm doing all right. But Jesus takes some time to unpack the fullness of our sin, that it's not just what we externally do. It is that, of course, but it's also how we internally are motivated and respond. So, verse 19, we continue on. It says this, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, we hear this now and we think, well, yeah, well, we know in, in 2,000 years of hindsight that the Pharisees, they were very moralistic and legalistic and they didn't quite understand the things right. And we would like to believe that if we were there in Jesus' time, that we would not have been Pharisees, that we would have been ones that are following him. And, and that is true for many of us, but 
We ought not to think that because we just have the external going for us, that we look good to other people, that that means that our hearts have been changed. Jesus talks about Matthew 23. He has these woes that he says, and he says, woe to you who are whitewashed tombs. There's only death inside of you, even though you look polished and pretty on the outside. He's saying God has to work in so that you could be made truly alive. And so we know that with hindsight, but for the ancient Near East, the Jewish people living in the early, you know, this century, to say that the righteousness would have to surpass that of the Pharisees and the law and the teachers of the law would have been devastating. Because they look at those people and they're like, they're the ones that have it all together. I, I don't, I, I know my brokenness. I, I know that I don't do all the things. I don't follow all 613 laws that the Old Testament, you know, Talmud says I need to do. I, I, I break even the Ten Commandments all the time. And people would say, wait, our righteous needs to surpass the ones who have it all together. Our righteous needs to go and we need to do more works than the ones who all they do is work for Jesus, or in this case, excuse me, for God. And it's the idea of like, well, maybe, I don't want to speak for you, but maybe some of you who are in a congregation and you're listening, you think, well, you know, I'm going to do the best I can, but like the real Christians are, are the pastors or the missionaries. The rest of us, we'll, we'll just, you know, we'll just kind of skate by. And Jesus says, no, no, it's not about the professional Christ followers. It's that all of our righteousness, yours, mine, and everybody, we all need to have a righteousness that is beyond external actions alone. It's more. People think, well, the Old Testament has so many laws that, that Jesus made things easier. No, friends, he made things much more clear, which also means that following him can be very difficult. Let's see this. John Stott says this. He says, Pharisees, they were content with an external and formal obedience, a rigid conformity to the letter of the law. Jesus teaches us that God's demands are far more radical than this. The righteousness which is pleasing to him is an inward righteousness of mind and motive. Quote, for the Lord looks on the heart, which is quoting the, the story of Samuel when it's saying the external appearance is man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks on the heart. So what Jesus does, verses 17 through 20, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Law of prophets point to me, I'm going to live them out and show you how. Then he says, your righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees. It has to go deeper than the fruit people see, and it has to go down to the root of who you are in Christ. And so then he gives examples. So in Matthew 5, 21 through 48, again, we're not going to have all these scriptures on the screen, but what he does is he starts to give examples. So when I say things at the beginning of the sermon and say, you know, the heart of the matter, maybe for you, it has to do with discipline when it comes to health. Maybe for you, it has to do with being kind with your words and, and being able to do that. Maybe for you, it's how we live and how that impacts our family. It's giving examples of a broader truth to bring it home to you and to me. Jesus starts to unpack some of these. D.A. Carson, before we jump in, he says this. He does not begin these contrasts because what he's going to do, he's going to say, you have heard it said, then he's going to say, but I tell you, you've heard it said, but I tell you this. And so he says he does not begin these contrasts by telling them what the Old Testament said, but what they heard it said. This is important. It's an important observation because Jesus is not negating something from the Old Testament, but something from their understanding of it. So he's not saying, you know what God said in his word? 
that you grew up with thousands of years ago, that's not real anymore. It's just about me. He said, no, none of that will be changed. It's fulfillment is found in me. But there's been some misinterpretations of it. And so we hear, uh, like an example that we've used here at the church before, is the idea that Hezekiah 4.12, if you guys are familiar with it, says that the Lord will give you nothing that you can't handle. Except for the fact that Hezekiah 4.12, Hezekiah is not a real book in the Bible, but it sounds real. It sounds like something like, oh yeah, no, that, that, sounds, that sounds about right. Or the idea that God helps those who help themselves. Just because I put a Jewish-sounding prophet name and put some numbers next to it, it's not actually in the scripture. But there's misinterpretations that come about all the time. When we think, oh yeah, no, God, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. Friends, we often have so much more than we can handle so that we turn to God. Now, God will not tempt us beyond our ability. That's what 1 Corinthians 10 says. But there are struggles, trials, tribulations, temptations, things that will draw us to God because on our own, we can't handle them. And that's the point, that we need Jesus. So we continue on. And so we go ahead and look at this. What we're going to do is I'm going to bring something up here to kind of help us illustrate some of this stuff in a moment. So when we look here at what this chart says, we're going to read from Matthew chapter 5, but here's some of the big things that Jesus says, hey, this is what you've heard. You've heard that it was said. And he talks about this. Let's go ahead and go to the table. He says, you've heard that it was said, we're going to see, that you shall not murder, because that's going to, that's going to make you subject to judgment if you murder people. Obviously, like don't murder. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, yep, that's from the Ten Commandments. We understand not to do that. You've heard it said that anyone who divorces must give a certificate of divorce. This is something that comes from Deuteronomy, and it's the idea like, well, some, a man must present a woman with a certificate of divorce in order for the divorce to be final. But what does that mean, and why is that something that maybe they've heard said differently than what was intended? You've heard it said, don't break your oath. You've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, even that, we think, oh, that's, that's in the Bible. That's also the code of Hammurabi that comes early in the ancient history as well. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth, we think, well, that's, in our context, we think that's really bad. But the idea was to stop retaliation. So if someone were to pluck out your eye, the code of Hammurabi, but even more importantly, the, what God's word says in the Torah is that, you would, you would be an eye for an eye. It's not that if someone cuts out my eye that I take their life. Because then if I take their life, then they're going to come after my life and my family. And they come after my life and my family, then I'm going to... You see how the retaliation, the original idea is just, hey, the punishment meets the crime. So he said, hey, you've heard. You've heard it said eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And then you've also heard love your neighbor and hate your enemy. These are the things that are very basic things that he's saying, listen, these are really simple things that you got to do. Make sure that you don't murder. Make sure that you don't commit adultery. Make sure that, you know, if you're going to divorce, that you, you know, at least you, you do it the right way, that you're going to have these different oaths and things. And so he starts to unpack this and love your, love your neighbor, but, you know, hate your enemy. Be someone who has a po- a opposition to those who are different than you. And so you start to get this idea, like, okay, like, it's a pretty decent understanding of our, the fullness of our sin. We think, okay, I, as long as I don't do these bad things, then I'm going to be okay. 
So he says, you've heard it said. That's all you got to do. Don't do these bad things, and you're all right. But then he does this where he says, but I tell you. And he goes here, he says, but, but here's what I want you to know beyond what's being said here. So the first thing that we see here is that you've heard it said, you shall not murder. Verse, uh, Matthew 5, 21, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with the brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is like, it's like idiot or, or blockhead or just kind of saying, you, you're, you're just so dumb. Like you're just, you're, you're not smart. Anyone who says raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool, that word fool is, uh, the Greek is moros. It's where we get the word moron. And so it's saying you moron will be in the danger of the fire of hell. What Jesus says is that it's not just murder that's murder. It's anger. It's contempt when you just dismiss someone. You block it, you idiot. What are you doing? And it's name-calling. You're a moron. These make you subject to judgment. Therefore, if you were offering, continuing on, verse 23, if you were offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. That God takes this so seriously that we are called to go. And if we realize not just have we, are we angry with someone, but is someone angry with us and we need to make something right? He's saying, have such urgency that you would go and you would prioritize. If there's conflict, be peacemakers and get to the heart of the matter so those relationships are restored. He gives another example, verses 25, he talks about settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. And it's saying, while you are walking there, do it while you're still together on the way to court, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. He's saying that there's division and anger. And friends, we've heard it said, don't murder. But if Jesus is telling us that anger, contempt, and name-calling makes us subject to judgment, then I loathe to see what's on maybe some of our text messages with our family or friends. I loathe to see what we put online when we get upset about someone who disagrees with us, and we call them morons. We call them idiots and blockheads. How could anyone think that? And we create this us-versus-them dynamic, even amongst the body of Christ, where somehow we've let whether it's political ideologies or understandings of, uh, of finances or how things should go, somehow we've allowed other things to divide the body of Christ. That's what it's talked about with a brother or sister. We allow things that divide the body of Christ so that what we, we forget that what unites us, being brothers and sisters in Christ, ought to be stronger than what divides us. So the law is a mirror, he says, okay, well, I have a murder. Okay, good, I've got that. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Have you been angry with someone to the point that you've allowed it to fester and it has created in you looking at that person as less than? Have you called someone, and even in your own mind, an idiot, a blockhead, so foolish that it's not even just that they're not smart. It's like you are actually morally less than or you are less than a person because I've dismissed you so much? Have you shown contempt to people 
Have you name called? Friends, it's not just about not murdering. It's about taking things a little bit deeper, getting to the heart of the matter, which is anger as a matter of our heart. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Looking lustfully is adultery. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, this is an important context for us to remember that as Jesus is sharing, he's using exaggeration. Like we don't see people who love the Lord to, to cut out the, with, without eyes and without hands because they're looking at this. Because why? Because lust, like many of these other sins, is something that even if you didn't have your eyes, your thoughts and your hearts could still go there. C- cutting out the external isn't enough to remove lust from our lives. And It can be an uncomfortable topic, but Jesus leaves no room to say, well, okay, I didn't commit adultery with someone outside of marriage, but have you thought lustfully? Have you you thought and you given into a daydream that causes you to go down a road that would dishonor the marriage covenant? It goes much deeper than just don't do big bad things. It goes to the heart. We continue on. You've heard it said, Anyone who divorces must give a certificate of divorce. Again, this is from the Old Testament. Um, This is when Moses talks about, okay, if you're going to get divorced, give a certificate. Here's how he writes it, or how Jesus says. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, again, here's another context where this is really difficult. We need to take in mind Matthew chapter 19 as we look at this passage. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 12. The Pharisees say, isn't it true that Moses said we can give a certificate of divorce to anybody? And Jesus says, he made that allowance because your heart was hard. But what man has brought together, or excuse me, what God has brought together, let man not separate. He says, listen, that was an allowance, but you've used it as the freedom to just divorce someone. That the covenant that we say, that the oaths that we make, and the, 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 the fidelity of our marriages is something where, listen, it says marriage should not be entered into lightly. It's something we say, no, we are making vows before God and before man. See, I'm committing to you fully and completely. And I receive the gift of your commitment to me fully and completely. And so, yes, they give. He says that because at the time, people would say, some in the Deuteronomy passage, the way that the Pharisees were starting to explain it was like, if there was sexual immorality, again, only the man at the time was able to give a certificate of divorce. So if the woman, if the man cheated on the woman, then she did not, at that time, have the rights to go through with that. And so the man is the one that said, okay, you've cheated on me, so I'm going to give you a divorce. Or even go so far as to say, you know, you've just generally displeased me, which is far too common thousands of years ago, and it is far too common now. Where people just say, 
I'm done. I don't want to work on this anymore. The emphasis on divorce is an emphasis on the, co- the vows and the covenant and commitment to marriage. And so he unpacks it. So again, there's a lot more to it, but we want to give the general idea of what he's saying here. Okay? It's about your word. It's about your commitment in marriage. Let God, what God has brought together, let man not separate. Let's continue on. You've heard it said, do not break your oath. Verse 33. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black, which I need to remind my daughters of. Um, all you need, because they're like, you have gray hair. I'm like, you have rude selves. Um, so just kidding. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Because they would come and do these verbal gymna- uh, gymnastics with things. Well, I swear upon the, the heavens that I will not break this commandment. But then they say, well, you know, the sky didn't show up today. So if the heavens refer to the stars, then I guess my vow doesn't really matter anymore. Or I, I, I make this vow, this oath based on Jerusalem. But you know what? Jerusalem is no longer led by Israel, like a Davidic king, so my vow doesn't really matter anymore. He's saying don't be grandiose and do verbal gymnastics. Don't try to find loopholes when it comes to working uh, with other people, when it comes to making contracts. It's saying let your yes be yes. If you say you'll do something, do it. You don't need to call upon everything else. It's internal. And if you're no, let your no be no. You don't need to curse or base it on anything else. It's internal. Your yes your be yes. Your no be no. Oh, man, I got to fly through here. Eye for an eye. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, this idea of why does it emphasize the right cheek? If I'm talking to you and I'm going to hit you if you're facing me and I'm hitting you on your right cheek, it's the idea that I backhanded you. So it's not just like, it's not like we punched and it's a square. It's this complete dismissal of a backhanded slap and the disrespect that that entails. And it's saying, if you have been backhanded, to offer the cheek so they could get a more square hit as well. It's saying that you turn the other cheek. It's saying, if someone sues you, give them more than what they offer. If, if you're forced to walk a mile, which is a Roman rule, they can force anyone to walk one mile and to carry their equipment. Roman soldiers could. So it's saying, hey, instead of going the one mile, go the extra mile. Then give to those who ask. I mean, it's saying you've been given, or, or it's not just, hey, let the crime meet the punishment. Alfred Plummer says it this way. He says that to return evil for good is devilish. Someone does good to you and you commit evil, that's of the devil. To return good for good is human. You're nice to me, I'll be nice to you, we'll be fine. To return good for evil is divine. It's saying that we can tell when God has worked in our lives and the Holy Spirit has moved because we're able to show love to people who beat us, curse us, tear us down. And it's not just this external show, it's that in our hearts there's actually still love there to go the extra mile to give, to turn the other cheek. Lastly, 
we see that it was said. You've heard those says. Go to the next one, please. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, verse 44, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, and if you greet, excuse me, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So throughout this time, Jesus is showing us this idea that you have this understanding that the fullness of your sin is just not doing the big bad things. Just don't do the big bad stuff and you'll be fine. But as we start to read this, we start to see that he's got so much more in store where it's talking about all these different little things that no one else will notice, no one else will see. The fact that underneath your good deeds externally are these internal things where you're not murdering someone, but you're calling them names. You're not committing adultery, but you're looking longingly over someone that is not meant for you. You're not you know, you're not hurting someone else that's hurt you, but the idea is that you should go beyond that to be able to help them. And so you start to see that over time, it provides us just a fuller idea of what, what this looks like. Okay, this is more of what it's supposed to be. It's, this is what it's more supposed to look like, to get a fullness of our sin, that it's not just not doing the big bad things. It's all the thoughts that you and I have every single day that we need to make captive and bring to Christ and talk about the idea that we know, as Paul said to Timothy, when he says, I am the worst of all sinners. We think, Paul, no, you're not. You look at all the good things you did. But like Paul, we, knowing all of our depravity, not just that we're not doing the big bad things, but all the little things that no one else knows about, we, like Paul, can say, you know what? I know that I, too, am the worst of sinners because I know my own badness. doesn't matter how nice and pretty it looks on the outside. I know my own sinfulness, and you know yours as well. But then, as we close, Jesus takes us a little bit further Because the heart of the matter is this. The heart of the matter is that when we are face to face with our brokenness and our sinfulness, the fullness of our sin, we get overwhelmed. We realize we can't do this on our own. We recognize that if this is, Jesus is the prism through which we see the fullness of the law, then we are far worse off than we ever thought. And we get to this idea that God needs to do a work in our heart. Because what did we just read? We just read the idea that that we have to be perfect, like our Heavenly Father is perfect. See, Donald Hagner says this. He says, since the spring of a person's conduct is the heart or inner person, the transforming power of the kingdom must be especially experienced there. See, Jesus says, be perfect in the next verse as your heavenly father is perfect. So now we've already seen our sin, our badness, and then all of a sudden we try to add to it this calling that God says for us to be perfect. And we start to get to the point where we thought we understood what it meant to love Jesus. It meant not doing the big bad things, but it's about all of our thoughts. And then it's about putting over the bond of love and humility and and clothing ourselves with kindness, which is the perfect bond of unity. It's recognizing that we can't do any of this on our own. 
It's recognized that, as Donald Hagner says this, this word for perfect is the word teleos. For Matthew to be teleos means to fulfill the law through the manifestation of an unrestricted love, including even love for your enemies. That is the reflection of God's love. This unrestricted love preeminently embodies ethical perfection. This perfection, and nothing less, is that to which Jesus calls his disciples. So he says, be perfect. Be complete. Now, that means that our love, the way that we love others, like, we know we're going to sin. This is not, I have no false delusions that I'm going to give such a sermon and point rocks and pour water on a table and you're like, oh, well, now I'll never sin again. But it's the idea of recognizing that the fullness of our sin shows us the fullness of our need for Christ. It's showing us that we cannot do this on our own. And it's showing us the only way we can live out the kind of love that is embodied through what Jesus says, going deeper and not just not doing the big things the bad, that are bad, but filling everything and recognizing our brokenness. It's that God needs to work in our hearts. In order to remove the fruit, he's got to uproot that which causes us to sin, that the root of our heart. He needs to get to the heart of the matter. So Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Sometimes we go to church and we realize we do bad things. Our hearts are made of stone. And so we just think, okay, well, I want to go to church or I want to go to a Bible study or I want to do something so that I can be like the best kind of stone I can be. I want to be like the Michelangelo's David of stone because I want to be perfectly crafted. I want to do all this. And Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, excuse me, through Ezekiel says, I'm going to remove stone from you and give you flesh. I'm going to make you have a relationship where we can know one another, love one another. And it's not about making bad people good. It's having dead people come back to life. It's not about just making ourselves look good on the outside. It's God working on the inside. It's not about just not doing the big bad things. It's about letting God permeate our hearts so much and that his Holy Spirit would come in and move us to follow his decrees that we too can love well. We could honor people well. We don't name call even when people call us names. We don't show contempt even when we're dismissed. We don't look lustfully because we are committed internally. We don't just make an oath and try to find verbal gymnastics to get out of our commitments. We let our yes be yes and our no be no. We recognize that we don't just love those who are like us and then hate everybody else, but Jesus, while we were still sinners, showed his love for us, that he died for us, that we were still on the other side of the chasm because of our sin, and Jesus came and made a way where there was no way. He came and he showed us what love is really like. He taught it, he fulfilled it, and he lived it to the point where we could say, what is God like? And we look to Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, and how he loves each and every one of us. And friends, for those of us who have a relationship with Jesus, we're called Christians, little Christs. Do we live like he lives? Do we just focus on not doing big bad things or do we see the fullness of our sin and him as the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of our need? 
And do we allow him to not just work on the external, but get to the heart of the matter? That we need his spirit to help us each and every day to live the way he's called us to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether they're live in person, live online, watching or listening later, Lord. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you know, you know far better than than I could or anyone else here could, which one of these sections uh, hits hardest for each person here. Or maybe it's not one that was specifically mentioned, but there's another big bad thing that we just think as long as we're not doing that, we're okay. But Holy Spirit, you are revealing that we, even our thoughts lead to sin. And so we need to make all those thoughts captive to Christ. And that we want to live in such a way that people would see how we live. And the verse right before all of this was that they would see our good deeds and they would give you glory, Heavenly Father. They wouldn't give us credit for being good Christians or, or good pieces of stone. They would give you glory for giving us a heart of flesh. Lord, I pray that you would speak and you would move in our hearts now as we enter into this time of communion. Lord, may you meet us here. May we feel your heart in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, You can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.